Early on Tuesday evening, firemen rushed towards Beirut port where a warehouse blaze was sending plumes of smoke into the warm summer Lebanese sky. But suddenly, the blaze exploded. A giant mushroom cloud of white smoke filled the sky and an orange, almost volcanic-looking ash spewed into the air. In the videos of the blast, you can see the shockwave carrying everything before it. In an instant, half of Beirut was damaged, scores killed and thousands injured. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're piecing together what happened on August 4th when Beirut was ripped apart by a huge explosion. If you haven't already seen the videos of the blast, there's a link in the show notes, you might be thinking it's hyperbole to say that half of Beirut was damaged. But that's the initial assessment of the city's governor, Marwan Aboud. 300,000 people are now homeless. 5,000 were wounded and at least 145 dead with scores of others missing. The cost of the damage, he estimates, is between 10 and 15 billion US dollars. But what could cause such a huge explosion? How did it happen and who is responsible? These are the tough questions Lebanon now faces and today we're going to try and provide some answers. Over 24 hours after the blast, the rescue operation is still ongoing. Dozens of international teams of disaster specialists are only starting to arrive. The official investigation into the disaster is only just beginning. But officials at this point have already given some details. Experts have made educated hypotheses and sources have provided insights. This is, for now, our best understanding of the events of August 4. Shortly before 6pm Beirut time, the first reports of a fire hit the news. Black smoke is seen billowing into the sky above Beirut port. At this point, dozens of people around the capital stopped to look and, importantly, began filming the fire. At least 10 firefighters attended the scene to tackle the blaze near or at Beirut port's Hangar 12 a special warehouse for storing hazardous material. We don't know at this stage if the firefighters were aware of what was inside. Local media have reported that the fire was sparked by a welder fixing a door to the warehouse and that it spread to crates of fireworks. Several explosive experts have reviewed the footage of the fire at this point and have suggested that that is plausible, but at this stage, we can't be certain. What we do know is that at about 6.14pm on August 4th, the fire suddenly exploded. The huge mushroom cloud, the plumes of orange lava-like fire and the devastating shockwave. Remember those people filming it? Well, dozens caught the moment on camera from angles all over the city. Some of those filming were injured or even killed in the blast. Several kilometres away from the blast, the home of the Nationals, Suniva Rose, was damaged. She headed out into the streets after the explosion to report on the situation. Um, there's a huge traffic jam because uh, there's so much destruction. There's glass all over the floor. Right in front of me, I think there's uh, first aid. Uh, someone is being uh, transported by, the, by an ambulance away from the scene. Yeah. 
an injured person in Jamezi who's being uh, taken away on a stretcher. The, the rocks from the, the building just fell straight down and completely smashed the cars underneath. This car, for example, has been completely smashed by some concrete blocks that were above. People are filming and, and crying. That singular moment around 6.14pm on August 4th upended the capital of Lebanon. But the blast also occurred at a place of great importance for Lebanon's infrastructure. Beirut port handles upwards of 90% of all of Lebanon's imports and exports by sea. Surrounded by war-ravaged Syria on three sides and a closed Israeli border to the south, it's a vital lifeline. And within moments, the port was almost entirely destroyed. The towering grain silos, large concrete steel structures built decades ago, are now twisted and shattered. Very little is left of the Beirut port's free zone. The import warehouses, the shipping cranes, and even some of the wharfs themselves that make up this archery to the world. But the blast radiated out. There's little left of the shops across the street from the port. Cars on the nearby motorway were thrown around like toys. The neighbourhood of Marmakal, about 500 metres from the seafront and the blast site, is a historical area with dozens of restaurants, bars, cafes, galleries. It's Beirut's vibrant urban heart. But now the popular nightlife spots are shattered shells. Buildings have come down and the street is in ruins. Further up the hill behind Marmakal is Jetewi. There too, houses are shattered. The windows of the Lebanese Jetewi hospital are smashed in. Lena Makadan was with her 92-year-old father, Mohammed, in the hospital when the blast struck. And when I turned my back, I heard a big, I don't know if it's an explosion or what. When I looked uh, in front of me, I saw like a mushroom uh, and I thought of uh, Hiroshima or something like this. It was a surrealistic uh, movie. And uh, when I turned to look at my dad, I couldn't see him because he was in his bed lying and covered all over with everything that was in this room. The doors, the windows, the glass, uh, anything, the aluminium. Uh, he was covered and I couldn't see him. And I began very calmly, calmly to tell him, Dad, you are okay. Dad, you are okay. Everything is okay. Don't be afraid. And I began to put off every piece of glass, of windows. And I was thinking, why? Why? And I was looking at him, a 92, 93-year-old man, living all that he did in his life. He is a real angel, a tough guy. Why is this happening? Not only to him, to us, to Lebanon, to Beirut. We don't deserve this. We don't. To the west of the blast site, towards downtown Beirut, the offices of the Daily Star newspaper and Anahar newspaper are blown in. Doors and windows of the Prime Minister's office in the historic Grand Sarai are splintered. The Parliament chamber is strewn with rubble 
and these scenes are repeated throughout the city. The windows of the now-abandoned cars on the roads are smashed. Glass is literally everywhere. Hoardings and fragile structures are falling down. Even 10 kilometres away, at Beirut International Airport, ceilings collapse and glass shatters. One explosive specialist described the blast as a massive shockwave that pushes outwards and then inevitably sucks back in again. These two motions, acting on buildings designed primarily to withstand one force, gravity, cause huge damage. There's no trace of nine of the ten firefighters who initially attended the scene. Port workers, local shop owners and people just unlucky enough to be nearby are now gone or missing. At this point, still just a few minutes after 6pm, Beirut is suddenly in motion. The wounded are seen staggering into the streets, dazed and confused. The scale starts to become clear. Red Cross ambulances start to respond to the urgent calls, but streets are blocked with fallen trees, crumpled cars, rubble and glass. Hundreds of calls are coming into the hotlines every minute from all over the city. Within half an hour or so, the hospitals are clearing the decks as injured start to arrive. Doctors start reporting for work and triage stations are hastily set up. Beds fill up and people are treated in corridors and in entrance halls. Supplies start running low. We've spoken to several doctors from many of Beirut's main hospitals and they keep saying one thing. The blood was everywhere. Within an hour and a half of the blast, the army had deployed around the site. Military helicopters were flying in water to dump onto the blaze and fire trucks at the ground were pumping water as thick black smoke continued to rise into the dusk sky. But what exactly caused the blast? Well, Prime Minister Hassan Diab on Tuesday evening said he believes that 2,750 metric tonnes of ammonium nitrate being stored in Hangar 12 had exploded. So what is ammonium nitrate? Ammonium nitrate is an odourless crystal substance commonly used as a fertiliser and in industry. But it's also been the cause of numerous industrial explosions over the decades. When combined with fuel oils, it creates a potent explosive widely used in the construction industry. But it's also been used by insurgent groups like the Taliban in Afghanistan as an improvised explosive. It looks as though there's been building damage up to around a kilometre or so away, maybe a little bit further. I've, I've heard reports of major glazing damage at several kilometres away from the site. Again, that, that's all leading towards the thought that it's it's something that's on the scale of about a kiloton or so uh, of high explosive yield equivalent, um, which would be about in the order of about 10% of the Hiroshima bomb. The energy that's released from a small nuclear device, you can again, again quantify typically in, in thousands of tonnes of TNT equivalent. Um, the very smallest are down at, at around about a kiloton or so. So this, this would be an equivalent yield to something that's on the, the scale of the smallest tactical nuclear um, weapon. That was Professor Andrew Tyas, an academic at the University of Sheffield who specialises in blast and impact engineering, talking about the effects of the explosion. The American University of Beirut's air monitoring unit reported a large spike in pollutants. Najat Saliba is a professor of analytical chemistry and the director of the Center for Nature Conservation at the American University of Beirut. The NO2 levels are they spike. I mean, they are much higher uh, after, during and after the blast. NO2 is very dangerous 
and uh, it's uh, one of the main causes for any COPD, uh, for the COPD diseases, another major, major problem. And that is, I mean, I think environmentally, what worries me now is the debris and the waste that is generated from glass powders and from the dust that is going around in the city. This dust has precipitated from the blast eventually. And now people are at the, at the site trying to clean up the mess uh, in front of their homes. And you can see the roads covered with glass, with glass beads or glass, I mean, broken glass and even powderish, powderish glass. And this is extremely dangerous if it ain't. So people have to be extremely careful wearing masks and, and when they dust those, they need to spray lots of water. We cannot dust those and resuspend them in the air and then wait for them to settle. Possibly a small silver lining to this disaster is that many people have protective equipment already because they need it for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm telling people that the same precautions that you take for uh, you know, the pandemic, you need to keep them. You need to actually double down on them. Meaning that you need to, they need to wear thick gloves if they are dealing with broken glass. And, and if some of this that goes, they go into the eye and this is going to cause irritation. So it's better to wear the shield while they are cleaning the shield that they use for actually for Corona as well. I mean, those masks are now goggles and masks are available everywhere. With piles of rubble, broken glass and debris everywhere in the city, those shields, masks and gloves will at least offer some protection. But why was there so much ammonium nitrate sitting in Hangar 12? Well, this is an issue that dates back six years and cuts to the very heart of one of Lebanon's many problems. It's bureaucracy. General Security Head Abbas Ibrahim says that the material was confiscated in 2014 from the cargo ship Rosas. Now, it's not exactly clear at this stage what the legal issue was. The Moldovan-flagged ship was transporting ammonium nitrate from Georgia to Mozambique, but it became stranded in Beirut. There appears to have been some issue over payments, and the cargo was impounded and moved from the vessel to Hangar 12, where it sat for the next six years, as a convoluted custody, payment and legal case played out slowly in courts far away. The head of the port, Hassan Kuraitim told local TV station OTV that he and Lebanese Customs had sought the removal of the cargo. There's indications that inspectors warned the government at least six months before the blast that it posed a dire risk to Beirut. Exactly why no action was taken, for now, remains unclear. The government has promised an investigation, but MPs are sceptical. MP Hadi Abu Hassan, a member of the opposition Progressive Socialist Party, told us that it's impossible for the government to hold those responsible to account under a corrupt political system that doesn't produce anything except tragedies and disasters. MPs, including the future movement of former Prime Minister Saad Hariri, say that because there are so many senior officials and at least one security agency that could be implicated in negligence in the case international experts have to be brought in to ensure transparency. While it's unclear if that will happen, French prosecutors have already launched their own case 
citing the injury of at least 21 of their own nationals. Hours after the blast, people are helping out injured neighbours, starting to assess the damage to their homes and businesses, and some are packing and leaving Beirut. Here's Seneva Rose again reporting from the streets on the evening of August 4th. And I'm following someone who lives in the neighbourhood and has left with her television set in her hand and her friends, uh, they took all their stuff and, and left. Um, I'm just going to see if she can say something to me. Can you just describe what happened, what you heard and what you're doing now? Uh, I was standing on the balcony uh, filming... Uh, there was like a fire on the Beirut port. They said it was uh, a firework uh, container. And so I was filming that, then there was one explosion, and then another one, like a huge one. That one just uh, threw me inside. And the whole apartment is completely wrecked. The streets are full of people. I think a lot of people don't know where to go because all the houses are like completely destroyed. There's a lot of injured. Apparently, there's a lot of dead people, and some people stranded apparently in buildings and stuff. So it's a it's a war it's a war zone. Do you mind just taking a mask down while you speak? Can you explain uh, what are you doing? You're taking and all your stuff in your hands and you're walking through the streets. Uh, where are you going? We just ah. took our valuables, our papers, uh, the laptop and stuff, and our dog, because the, even the house, the apartment is completely broken. And we're going uh, to my mom's probably. She lives in the mountain. Our cats are still stranded. We couldn't find them. Beirut passes a sleepless night. The day after the blast, people start to rally around. Groups start to pick up and clean the glass on the streets and clear roads. Food and clothes donations start to be organised and groups are going house to house to make sure that people have supplies as most shops remain closed. Online, people are organising pages for lost pets, to open spare rooms to those who've lost everything, for donations to local NGOs and to the Red Crescent. People flood hospitals, this time to donate blood. There's even social media pages to try and find the missing. But as well as the solidarity, there's an undercurrent of anger. This disaster isn't the only crisis in Lebanon. The country is in financial meltdown. The value of the national currency has dropped nearly 70% since October 2019, Unemployment is rising fast, as is poverty. Basic services, even electricity, is in short supply. The government of Hassan Diab was formed to fix these woes. Seven months in, there's little sense on the ground that they've made progress, although Cabinet regularly releases statements extolling the steps that they've taken. And crucially, the government has not passed reforms that they need to tap into nearly 11 billion US dollars in international loans and grants to fix the roads, end the blackouts and provide constant water supplies. So far, there is little progress in talks with the International Monetary Fund on a massive bailout. The August 4th disaster compounds all these issues, but it also focuses the mind. In the coming days and weeks, the Lebanese government will have to face some tough questions. Whether it'll be up to that job and the mammoth rescue operation, the clean-up and the rebuild, 
is unclear. Along with the obvious grief due to the loss of human life, there's also the sadness that they might also lose a lot of Beirut's heritage. Here's Mona Harb, a professor of urban studies at the American University of Beirut. I mean, the amount of damage in the old areas, the pericentral areas of Beirut, what we call the pericentral areas, where you have the most organic fabric, the oldest fabric, so um, houses that have a heritage value as well, a architectural value, but that are also in a, in a state of um, dilapidation or, or poor conditions because of their age. Uh, there are so many layers to this explosion. I mean, the human consequences of this are huge, but the layers that are embedded with that, these are areas that are rich not only in terms of architecture and urban heritage. This is where we go to walk and to enjoy these buildings and this atmosphere. This is where people have chosen to live also because of these characteristics and these components. Uh, the most progressive NGOs have their offices there. There are a lot of small bookstores and bookshops and small boutiques, designers' boutiques, artists' boutiques, uh, startups that have set shops in those areas for a variety of reasons. But this is an opportunity for people who want to get rid of an old heritage buildings that they've been forced to preserve for a variety of reasons, that they can use this as a reason to get to destroy that building. Or the cost of its renovation is going to become simply unaccessible. I don't know to what extent people have the strength and the stamina that uh, to continue rebuilding and to invest, reinvest, <laughs> I mean, they've done this a number of times. We were already scrapping for shreds of hope to survive a very serious economic, monetary, banking crisis. So people have no money even to sustain themselves before this explosion. So now people have to deal with uh, buying aluminum frames and glass and uh, people lost their homes and their cars and their belongings. Historical building seems like the least of one's concern, right? If I were in a historical building and I had rest restored it in some ways and I have to pay more money to, to do it now, I would seriously reconsider that choice and maybe pack and leave. Politicians talk of national unity in the face of a crisis, but the liberations in Lebanon are long and tortuous, and compromises to avert disaster often come in the final moment. But while things can seem bleak, there's also hope. In Lebanon, so many have been forced to pick up the pieces of their lives over and over again after destruction. The state has rarely helped. And instead, they have a powerful community spirit. This building is completely destroyed. I believe it was already old and it had facades, but they've completely disappeared or been blown off by the blast, people holding brooms and cleaning. Hi. Hi. Do you speak English? Yes. Anyone want to tell me just what you're doing? Why are you holding brooms? Listen, we'll tell you. <laughs> we've been, been sweeping up the streets. We came, all of us, and we're sweeping up the streets. We're cleaning them up. You live Everyone here? Everyone needs our help. You live here? Yeah, we all live here. Okay, so it's like a neighborhood initiative? Yeah, we came as one group, and then everyone joined them together. Yes. We have to do, every little bit counts. <laughs> So you're literally just 
using these brooms. Yeah, we got buckets. We got gloves. We had some garbage bags and we're just sweeping. And you're sweeping or you're putting stuff in garbage bags? Yeah, we're putting them for recycling. For recycling? Are they able to recycle now? Yes. We hope so. Are you going to continue for a day? Yeah, definitely. We're coming here tomorrow. You had time to clean your own set? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. What do you think is going to happen now? We have no idea, but we're standing together in the meantime. Thanks this week to the Nationals' correspondents in Beirut, Suniva Rose and Bassam Zaza. To everyone who took the time to share their story during this difficult period. And our thoughts now are with everybody in Lebanon. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. If you want all the latest episodes as soon as they're released, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And while you're there, why not leave us a review? It makes a big difference.